Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to talk about the prospects of the ongoing Portuguese Council Presidency, which has the slogan, Time to Deliver, a Fair, Green and Digital Recovery. To help me make sense of it, I have an all-star cast. I'm very happy to welcome Teresa Gouveia, who is an ECFR board member and has held multiple positions in the Portuguese government, serving as Secretary of State of Culture, Secretary of State of the Environment, Minister for the Environment, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Also down the line from Lisbon, I think, is Claudia Azevedo, the Chief Executive Officer of SONAI, which is a multinational business group based in Portugal, who will hopefully give us a, a business perspective on a lot of these issues. And finally, last but not least, we have Carlos Muedas, who is a trustee at the Carlos Gulbenkian Foundation, and uh, maybe even more importantly for the purposes of this podcast, is the former European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation in Brussels. Thank you all very much for joining. On the 1st of January, Portugal took over from Germany at the helm of the Council of the EU's Rotating Presidency, and the government set out three priorities for their presidency, captured in the slogan that I mentioned earlier about promoting Europe's recovery, leveraged by climate and digital transitions. This is meant to be fair, but it's also meant to strengthen Europe's strategic autonomy, um, keeping it open to the world. Carlos, you've been involved in lots of different presidencies as a European commissioner in Brussels and know what is possible and not possible to do. Do you want to maybe start by giving us a few general thoughts about what this presidency means and what one can hope to, to see come out of it? Hello, uh, Mark and uh, all the panel. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, so I've lived through a lot of these presidencies and they are very important, but at the same time, very difficult moments. Because if I go back and I try to think about the presidencies that uh, I went through every six months since 2014, it's very difficult to actually, in your memory, get what was the mark? What, what did they change in Europe? It's very difficult to be a presidency that really marks the agenda and changes the things in Europe that we fight for every day. But so I think that it's an important moment for the country, but then you have to leave a mark and, and be able to do something. And for the Portuguese presidency, is even more difficult because we had three presidencies before, one in 1992 with the Maastricht Treaty, so a big moment, the Maastricht Treaty, then in 2000, with the Lisbon strategy and also the Nice Treaty. And then in 2007, with the Lisbon Treaty. And now it's actually quite difficult for the government to find uh, something that is of equal value or of equal importance. But I think that if I look forward and I look into uh, what this presidency is, it's actually a very important one, but probably not as visible in having one of these flagships. But you have, first of all, the urgency, 
with the pandemics and uh, the vaccines, which is a very important thing for Europe and for all of us. And we have to deal with that. And we have Brexit. So I would divide the presidency not in basically the buzzwords of what's uh, what are the objectives, but in terms of what uh, they have to do. So pandemics, vaccines, Brexit, it's an ongoing urgent problem that we have to deal on the detail and that the Portuguese presidency is dealing with. The second is what one we call working in the engine room, which is about all the nitty gritty that one needs to get the next generation EU going, to get the MFF going. All that people think, okay, it's agreed and it's done and it's not. There's a lot of engine work. Engine, I'm talking here about what I call the engine of Europe when the institutions are working together. And then you have the strategy and you have the points that were raised by the Portuguese prime minister as the strategy that I would divide one in geopolitics, where you will have this very important EU-India summit. And that's one of the, as Costa said, the jewel in the crown. And then you have all the strategic autonomy that uh, it's also very important for the Portuguese uh, strategy and the social pillar. And so I would uh, really divide uh, basically what we have to do in these three parts. Uh, but I think is uh, always an amazing moment for the ministers, for the public. Unfortunately, digitally is not the same as uh, it used to be before. So that's something that we have to live with. So let's see how things will uh, shape up in the next months if there's more public events. So, Teresa, you, you've been working on presidencies from the other side, from the Portuguese government side. What do you think will look like a success on these different areas from a Portuguese perspective? One thing is the public success and the media success of the presidency. And I think this has to do probably with the summits and so on. But what I really think it's a real challenge for Portuguese, following what Carlos was saying about the previous ones and the, what we face now, I think that an important measure of European cohesion depends very much on what's happening in these six months regarding the how to deliver, because delivery is one of the key words of the presidency, but deliver in the vaccination process, I'm being now very detailed, and in the recovery fund and in delivering the financial support to member states for uh, facing the pandemic difficulties. And so these two deliveries, I think, are a condition of a public perception for European cohesion and for political European cohesion. And this is very difficult to measure. And it's not very, how shall I say, easy to put forward as a mediatic success. But I think this is the underlining measure of, of success for the presidency. On Brexit, I would say it will be an ongoing bargaining for a long time. It won't be decided on these first six months, however important it is that we start talking to the British, especially on security and defense. But uh, I think it will be a very long and maybe painful process. So, Claudia, you're not working within a government entity, but you do run a, a big company, which is based in Portugal, but operate in 60 countries around the world, I think. How, how does it look from your perspective? It's, uh, as Carlos said, it's difficult for this Portuguese presidency to be as a uh, mark as the others were, because also in Portugal, we had two very difficult months 
COVID in, in January and February. And so everybody's attention was on was on that. The motto you, you referred to, fair, green and digital, I think is, is very important. And, and we are at very different points in each of them. Uh, in terms of fairer, I think the social summit in May in Portugal can be something that is that is very good. Uh, also very, when we come back from this COVID confinement, maybe this summit can be in presence. It's it's in a, in Oporto, and that I think will also be a sort of a signal of uh, of recovery. And also the social agenda of the European Union, I think, is is fundamental. There's a, a study from McKinsey, but there are several of them that saying that we have to at least reskill 100 million uh, Europeans, reskill, upskill. And this is this is really important. And, and as coming from the business side, we know that we need these people. They're already missing. And we know that one of the skills that Europe has is people. We don't have as much investment as uh, uh, the US or China. Uh, we don't have the, the assets, the, the digital uh, champions that they have at the moment. But we have people. And so I think this social summit, and if we can do this with the companies, that would be great. For in, for example, in the Portuguese recovery plan, there is a, a huge amount of money for digital education conversion, but around 70% of it goes to the state. And, you know, 80% of the people are employed by companies. So my wish is that Europe does this more with, with the companies. I think in terms of, of green, we are in a much better position than in digital. I think we can lead uh, the green revolution throughout the world. And I think also companies are very important important in that. Because one of the things you say is when, well, if you have to oblige a Portuguese company, a Spanish company or a Dutch company to have such standards, and then they will, um, another company in, in China or another place will, will produce that instead of us, or people will set up companies in different countries. I think com companies today are very aware of this problem, very aware of their brand and want to have a purpose. And so I think there is an, a law in Europe around any of the sustainability issues. They will do it in, in their offices in Paris, but they'll also do it in their offices in, in China and Singapore. And so that could be also a, a great way for companies to be helpful in these sort of, there are no climate frontiers. So I think Europe has a role to play there. And I think Europe multinationals also have a role to play there. And, and people trust more companies than, than, than governments, according to some surveys. And I think we can play a part there. In terms of, of digital, I think uh, there, I think Europe is very far behind, very, very far behind. And we have, for example, in the Portuguese presidency, Horizon Europe was, was a, a very good uh, start. We have a lot of money in, also in the recovery plans. I think we, we have some good signs. We have more unicorns now in Europe than we had a couple of years ago. We have some people coming back that were in a venture capital investment banking in the States coming back to Europe and setting up funds. There are more funds in Europe, and that's a good thing. It's also cheaper to set up a digital company nowadays because there's the cloud, there's the platforms. You can set up a company much cheaper than before. But in terms of infrastructures, uh, Europe is it doesn't, for example, cloud provider. We don't have any cloud provider. I know there's a an initiative in the European Union uh, to to do one, and we we not have any champion in, in platform as a service. So here, I think there's a space for a big investment in, in Europe that um, that makes sense, and I think companies are really fundamental for that. And I hope that Portugal doesn't lose this opportunity with the recovery plan, that the recovery plan that's today out for public consultation, 70% of the money goes to the state, 30% to companies, and most of it to very small companies. I think that we may be missing a, a huge opportunity for Portugal and also for Europe, for example. 5G was is something that can be huge for Europe. It, the European Commission said 5G was a key asset for Europe. 
There is absolutely no aligned strategy between the countries that are doing auctions in Europe. We have countries like Finland doing very well, sort of having an auction that is price per capita low and a lot of bandwidth. You have countries like Italy doing exactly the reverse. You have countries like Portugal doing very crazy things. And, and we have actually a complaint in the commission and about that. But so, so, you know, an important thing that Europe should get right, 5G, I, I don't know how these things work and Carlos will know better, but it's a, an important one to get right. And I think maybe we're missing this one. So, so Carlos, you spent a number of years trying to steer Europe's science and innovation policies and to make the kind of dream of a digital transition into a reality. How do you think we're doing? What do you think that the next kind of generation of challenges are in that area? I agree with Claudia with the, uh, what she said. And, and I think that we still struggle really in Europe. In Basically, we're very good at transforming money into knowledge, but not as good as transforming that knowledge back into money. And, and that's something that is exactly what Claudia was saying about digitally, about how do you transform the knowledge that we have, because we're so good at fundamental uh, science, and then we cannot really transform that into products. And that is because uh, the single market somehow is not yet working properly. What Claudia was describing about the 5G, that uh, a country does one thing or another country does something else, it's because we don't have a full um, internal market working where digital is the digital law of Europe and not the digital law of countries. I'm very happy with, with the past couple of months where Thierry Breton, I think, has been an exceptional commissioner and uh, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act uh, is finally out there to really try to solve what Claudio was saying. But I'm hopeful about the future because I think the next steps that we have in front of us, they are related to things that Europe is quite good. And I'm talking about artificial intelligence. We really have the knowledge, but we don't know how to transform that into money or products. When uh, you talk about everything related to quantum computing, Europe is also very good with very good scientists. And even on 5G, the other day Thierry Breton was saying something that struck me, that 50% of the patents in 5G are actually in Europe, uh, much more than in other parts of the world. But so what do we do with those patents? Are we going to be able to transform those patents into products or not? That's the question. If we take those two pillars that we talked about, the digital pillar and the, the green pillar, those different transformations that we've been discussing a bit earlier on, they are ones which maybe if we've been having this discussion 10 or 15 years ago, would largely have been thought of as issues to do with the interface between business and EU level legislation and regulation and funding. But increasingly, they've become quite geopolitical on the digital side. 5G has been a massive battleground between China and America. We're seeing increasing tensions around the future of semiconductors. AI is definitely an area where there's quite a lot of geopolitics uh, as well as science and economics. And climate as well is, is becoming uh, a big topic. The EU has said that it's going to introduce some sort of carbon border adjustment mechanism in order to stop carbon leakage as a result of the ambitious green transition plans that it's had. But that is obviously going to have enormous implications for Europe's relationship with, with other superpowers like uh, Biden's America and Xi Jinping's China. 
Teresa, how do you see those agendas intersecting, the foreign policy agenda and these domestic transformations? I think there are two important challenges before us. Um, The first one, I would say, was rebuilding transatlantic community. And all diplomatic strengths, I think, should be to uh, try and organize a meeting between President Biden and the European Union in Europe, uh, hopefully in Oporto. But I think that we have had encouraging words in Munich from him regarding either EU and NATO. So I think that a joint meeting with the EU and NATO should be worked on and where EU and NATO cooperation could be discussed, for instance. This is, this is I think, one big challenge. I think the agenda is unending. The regulation of the digital space, as we've been talking, is one point. Climate, of course. I think these two issues are global issues. They could be dealt with in a multilateral context, hopefully. Then we also have Africa and we have NATO and something that has not been talked uh, too much, which is the Arctic. But I don't want to go into into this detail. It's just saying that recent navigation through the North Pole brings security concerns on the Arctic, which are not being addressed by the EU, and I think it could be together discussed with the United States. Another dossier, foreign dossier, would be India. I think we are seeing a unprecedented openness and interest from India regarding the EU. Of course, this is understandable. I think uh, they might want to have some additional leverage uh, in the context of the US-China competition. And so they're looking at Europe and be, being very open regarding all suggestions that have been made diplomatically for India participation in either think tanks or in many other platforms. So I think the summit would be a a tremendous opportunity for in so many details. I think climate, of course, security. We cannot forget that the Asian democracies, uh, we need to talk to them regarding our European security is very much connected with this region. And I think that having, once the EU was able to mobilize such political and diplomatic energy, rushing to sign an agreement with China, I think we should engage with exactly the same, to say the least, energy and reach a trade agreement with with India, which has been negotiating for some time. I think it is absolutely essential. I'm not so much confident on the Africa summit, which I think is undergoing some difficulties. African Union is not very happy with the substance of the agenda. They want to include more COVID-related issues like the vaccine and debt relief. So I'm not sure we will be holding a meeting in Portuguese presidency. This doesn't make it less important that we should work together with EU member states and the next presidencies to really give substance to this uh, project, to this summit and to this negotiation with African Union, because this is critical for Europe. I think that we should really try and build an Euro-African partnership facing competing powers in the region on climate, on pandemic, on digital. They're all areas where we should come in. And especially, and especially, which is very politically important, as an alternative provider of supply chain goods, because we need alternatives. In, and this has to do with European sovereignty. I think we need supply chains in raw, rare materials, in so many other 
fields and we I think we should try and talk to Africa and consider Africa, not only sub-Saharan Africa. I think, for instance, Morocco is waiting for a closer partnership in so many fields, and this could be one of them. So, Claudia, when you, because you, you run this big global company which is active all over the world, how do you feel when you hear European politicians talking about strategic autonomy or sovereignty? In your kind of mind, how is globalization being changed as a result of those sorts of debates in Europe, Chinese debates about dual circulation, discussions about Buy America and decoupling in Washington. Are we going through a kind of fundamental change in terms of how global markets work? Yes, I think so. I th- we are a global company, but uh, 90, more than 90% of uh, is European companies. So I look at it much more from a European And I think that uh, these tensions between China and uh, the US, I think, helped us position Europe because suddenly we saw that there was a void there, at least in terms of, uh, for example, the the digital, as as we were saying, you know, and data is the the new oil. And suddenly we, we look at Europe and we say there is no major cloud platform that is European. And so I think that's that's been left very clear in Europe. And I think today everybody's very clear that there's, there's, there's China, there's the United States, and then what can we do in Europe? And I, some things I'm very optimistic, like Carlos said, uh, in artificial intelligence, I think we have countries in Europe that, that are doing very well. I'm super optimistic in our education, our higher education and our scientists, but it in, involves investment. When uh, there was we signed a petition for 3% of the GDP to be dedicated to uh, research and development. And I think if you sort of round up all the pots in the European Union, it just gets to 3%. But it's uh, it's lower than, than other countries and lower than United States uh, and China. So fundamental for us to bet on, on people, fundamental for us to bet on infrastructures. A lot of this sort of the industry 4.0 is very important for Europe. We have fantastic industries but we have to leverage them and they have to become digital. And there we can be uh, key competitors, world competitors. And this also affects today, these data, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity affects everything, affects health. We've seen in this COVID times that uh, a lot of x-rays were were actually uh, to see if people, how people's lungs were affected by the the bug um, were done by artificial intelligence. And it's and it's great that somewhere uh, where there's, you can be in somewhere where there's no specialized doctors and get the knowledge of the best combined in a computer of artificial intelligence looking at your x-ray. So I think these tensions have now Europe has no way out. We know that we have to be a sovereign and how we do it. And do we build a European cloud? How do you tell a European company that instead of buying your cloud from Amazon or bundled in a Microsoft product, you have to buy this new one from Europe? You know, what are the costs? How do we do the funding? And so a lot of issues. But I think the problem is clear. I think the direction and the sense of purpose is clear and we have to implement. And that's sometimes where we, we're not so good at because there are a lot of countries, a lot of governments, and that causes a lot of um, hurdles. So, Carlos, why don't we give you the, the last word on that? How do you think one does move forward to the question of implementation? Because that, in a way, has been one of the biggest challenges for the European project for many decades now, but came very much into the forefront this year with uh, the, all the problems that there have been in actually turning the beautiful ideas common vaccines programs and the recovery plan into actual real policies that people can experience in their everyday lives? 
I think that the main thing is that you have to engage people more. Because if you engage people more uh, in what Europe wants to do, people will help you uh, through voting the right leaders and uh, being proud of Europe. And uh, when I was at the commission, we decided to go on these kind of moonshots for Europe, these five missions for Europe, where you would create an idea of a direction. So you're not picking winners or telling what are the companies that one should invest, but one should have these directions. Like we want uh, that in 10 years, nobody will die from cancer. And that's one direction. And then you would have a bottom-up approach through the European Innovation Council, through the European Research Council of scientists, of innovators that know the direction, but they will come bottom-up with ideas that will come from different areas of uh, different disciplines in different parts of society. And if you do that, then things change. The problem is that today you don't have that engagement of the people. You don't have or most of the people don't even know how Europe works. They don't even know where we're going. They just hear all these buzzwords about communication. And I think we got much better. I think that Ursula von der Leyen is, getting, is doing it much better than we did in the Juncker Commission by, for instance, changing something so simple as the name of the legislation. If you say the, the Directive for the Services Act or the, the new Digital Markets Act, it's much easier to understand. So there's also an effort in communication that has to be done. And then I think that we will get stuck uh, if countries don't understand that a lot of these issues that we deal today should be solved at the level of the Euro European Union. And so they cannot uh, keep pushing us on always getting to unanimity and everything has to be done through unanimity because it's not going to work. There will be powers of the EU that have to be kept and other powers that we'll have to have in the future. If not, we'll not be able to advance. The digital uh, point is exactly that, is that we don't have yet at the level of the union powers that are needed to move uh, the needle. Um, even uh, you were talking about science, just to give you uh, an idea, uh, Horizon Europe, one of the biggest programs in the world, it's around 10 billion a year, 100 billion for seven years. But if you look at an institution in the US like the National Institute of Health, one institution is 40 billion euros of public money a year. So the difference is not one to two, is one to four or one to five. Why? Because it's not just the amount of money that the U.S. spends in research and development, is that most of the money in the U.S. comes from a federal level. So the competition to get to that money makes it the best to get to the money and the best ideas to get out. And in Europe, it's not just that we invest less, but we invest less at the federal level quote-unquote, level. So uh, those things will change, but uh, it will take time and, and we have to mo keep moving forward. Wow, those are big things which I think we'll be still talking about even after the end of the Portuguese presidency. Thank you very much to all of you for giving us such a, a wonderful panoramic tour of the, the kind of existential questions which uh, are going to be on the agenda for the next few months. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. Um, Teresa, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I've just read a, an article by Robert Kagan on foreign affairs. It's called A Superpower, Like It or Not, Why Americans Must Accept Their Global Role. And this is about the, that, say that, that in the end, the bottom line is that there's no alternative to an American world order. 
The, the alternative would not be a Swedish world order with uh, institutions and, and, uh, and the rule of law, but instead power vacuums and chaos and so on. Time has come for Americans to understand that there is no escape from their global responsibility. It's, it's very interesting because it gives you a view of how America's role in the last decades has evolved and grown, and it's, it's, it's quite uh, interesting to read. Wonderful. What about you, Claudia? I'm I'm in the middle of the Bill Gates book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, that I recommend. It's it's very good. The the subject is very complex, but he makes it very clear and our choice is very clear. And also if I could quickly recommend an article by another fellow Portuguese, Antonio Guterres, he did an article in The Guardian on Monday the twenty second, and about that the world faces a pandemic of human rights. Uh, we know that this is a social, economic and health crisis, but he also points to the degrading of the gender equality and the political and civil rights that are, are being uh, squashed uh, based on COVID uh, excuses. <laughs> Great. What about you, Carlos? So I've just received from uh, two different friends two great books. One uh, is from Mariana Mazzucato called The Mission Economy, where she tells the story about how a work uh, in the European Commission, not just that, but he, she talks about what we did and defined these missions uh, for Europe, uh, the one that I mentioned of cancer, to have 100 cities in Europe that carbon neutral uh, uh, until 2030. So that's one very interesting book from Mariana. And the second one from my friend Adam Grant called Think Again. Adam Grant is a psychologist, he's a, he's a great speaker, and uh, basically is a book about thinking and then when you are listening, you should be not thinking about what you want to answer, but just listening to what people are saying. And it's a, it's a fantastic book, a must read, actually, as Bill Gates said, cover of the book. So, uh, so read it and you'll uh, have a lot. Of, um, you'll enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. That sounds wonderful. And I've been reading a book called Time of the Magicians, the Invention of Modern Thought from 19... 19- 19 to 1929 by Wolfheim Eilenberger, which is a, a wonderful intellectual portrait of two really, sorry, of four critical thinkers who transformed the German debate about, about the way that we thought about the world. Walter Benjamin, Martin Heidegger, Ernst Kazira, and uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. So it's been a, a kind of fun return to some of the things I used to think about in a former life when I was a philosopher. People have enjoyed listening to this podcast. Please do let other people know about it by giving us a rating or a review on whatever platform you've used to download the podcast on. We will put links up to all the publications that we've mentioned on our website on ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Teresa Gouveia, Claudia Acevedo, Carlos Muedas, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The Restrepy CFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Mm-hmm.